The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the evolution of the presidency. From the beginning, the job was supposed to be limited. Leadership skills were necessary, but the real decisions were to be made by Congress. Well, as time rolled on, the office grew past its humble beginnings and became the most powerful in the world. How did this job become so influential? And just as important, what does the future hold? The awesome responsibility of today's chief executive. Why those that get the job find it just as frustrating as it is powerful. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're about the office of the presidency as much as the presidents here on American POTUS, and today's discussion is focused on just that. To help us get into this is Dr. Jeremy Surrey. He holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. In addition to his teaching duties as a professor in the university's Department of History and the LBJ School of Public Affairs, he's written and edited 10 books on contemporary politics and foreign policy. His most recent title that Alan and I want to focus on is his book called The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Jeremy, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. And it's such an important moment right now to be talking about the history of the presidency. And uh, your podcast is the place to go. So I'm delighted to be a part of it. Well, thanks so much, Jeremy. Great to hear your voice again. We really appreciate you joining us. You know, you introduced this wonderful book, The Impossible Presidency, by saying that, quote, presidential power is awesome and pathetic at the same time, unquote. Now, most of us think that the president is the most powerful person in the world. So what first led you to see that other side of the coin? And how do you define success in the presidency? Well, I think this is the central paradox of the presidency. Presidents have enormous power. There's no doubt about it. I can't think of a modern figure who has more power than the modern American president. But presidents are consistently frustrated with how little they can achieve with their power. And that's what drove me to write this book and to make the statement that you quoted so kindly. Um, every president I've studied, uh, every president I write about uh, laments almost on a daily basis, that they can't get the things done they want to get done. They have all this power, but they still can't get the results. Uh, think about Lyndon Johnson as the iconic example of this, uh, placing the American military in Vietnam uh, and not able to achieve any of his goals there. In fact, every day it just gets worse and, and worse. And, and there's a complex 
explanation for why this is the case, but the simplest way to put it is that the power the president has is the power to get a lot of things started, to do a lot of things, but not to see them through. There are too many other actors. And the more the power of the president grows, the more dependent the president is on other people carrying out his policies and other people reacting to his policies in ways he hopes they will react to them. Hmm. Well, let's let's go back to the beginning though, with the founders. When they conceived the idea of a president, why do you say that was, quote, the most original innovation of America's founding moment? Well, there had never been anything like this office before. Uh, our Congress is modeled in many ways on the British Parliament. Our uh, judicial system is modeled not entirely on the common law tradition, but very much on the founders reading of Blackstone and the legal scholarship around the British tradition. Uh, There there never was an office quite like this. Uh, There were kings, there were uh, military leaders, uh, but the notion of creating a figure who would be elected by the people and would have this kind of power, but then have to give it up to have this power for a short period and to have it by merit, uh, not by birth. So w- one of the things I like in Lin-Manuel Miranda's play Hamilton, which you know has its historical issues, uh, is the disdain uh, that the British monarchy has for the American president. It's not just that Washington is the president of the small new republic. It's that they don't understand what a president is. The founding fathers created uh, an office uh, that had the monarchical trappings of bringing people together or speaking for the larger sovereignty, the larger community, but at the same time had the kinds of restrictions on it um, every four years having to be elected, not being um, inheriting the office, the office not coming from nepotism and the requirements uh, of the office being bound by the constitution. uh, These are things that monarchs uh, never recognized uh, before this. So it, it becomes an office with unifying national power but limitations upon it uh, that were original. And that's what creates this this really remarkable office. Well, George Washington, as the first occupant of that very innovative office, was indispensable, I think, in many ways. What what were his greatest what are his greatest legacies from his years as president? And what would he think today about the presidency? What would most surprise or upset him about the office today? I, I think Washington leaves three legacies that are absolutely crucial for our republic. Uh, they're as important as the Constitution, and they were not required by the Constitution. He's defining the office as the founder defines a new business or as uh, the artist defines a new way of doing art. Um, the first uh, legacy from Washington is the use of the office to unify the country. Uh, not to be partisan. He's the first and the last president not to belong to a party, really. Uh, But he still at least creates a model for us of those entering the office, thinking of themselves, even as they still have a party affiliation as being somewhat above party. Every president, perhaps except the most recent one, uh, have thought of themselves in this way, have thought of themselves as somehow being above the party, of the party, but not subsumed by the party in the way they might have been when they were running for office. So that's one thing. Second, um, he invests the resources of the presidency, which are very small 
at the start. He invests them in the kinds of projects that he believes will serve the common interests of the country. Uh, his national economic plan that um, Alexander Hamilton uh, largely formulates for him. Uh, his call for uh, a national education system. George Washington calls for creating a first-class university system in the United States. His emphasis upon infrastructure. He doesn't get involved in pal- policy detail. He doesn't seek to manage the policy in the country. He seeks to invest and encourage general structural activities that will benefit the most uh, number in the citizenry. Uh, and then the third thing in his most important legacy uh, is that he resigns. <laughs> he leaves office. Uh, and as Gary Wills, uh, who's also written about presidents in Washington in particular, points out, uh, Washington makes his career by always resigning at the right moment. <laughs> He, he, yeah, right. he gives up his command of yeah. the army at the end of the revolution, and he gives up the presidency after two terms. And his farewell address, uh, which I quote and, and still believe is one of the most important documents in our history, mm-hmm. lays out very clearly uh, that the presidency is an office one holds in trust for a short period of time, and then you move on and you mm-hmm. leave it to others. And yeah. uh, that's such an important legacy that also had almost no precedent in history before this period. So looking at today, what do you think would surprise him or upset him perhaps about the office itself? Well, I think George Washington and many of his successors through the 19th century uh, would not recognize the presidency today. Um, The amount of power the office has, uh, the range of issues presidents uh, deal with, um, from health care to education to race to human rights Uh, The range and scope of activity on a global scale, the size of the bureaucracy around the presidency, uh, and quite frankly, the um, selfish uh, grasping onto power. Uh, Washington might have anticipated that a little bit, but but the power-hungry nature of our politics, I think that would have really shocked him. You know, it's really not until the late 19th century that presidents actually personally campaigned for office. Could you imagine that today? No. Someone saying they're going to run and not campaign uh, for yeah. office. That would startle him. That would startle him to see <laughs> yeah. this, to see yeah. the way we campaign. So you, you state that George Washington led the government, but Andrew Jackson led the people. So how did Jackson redefine the office of the presidency? Well, Jackson took this office, which was really um, disengaged from the day-to-day activities and really brought it more into the concerns, particularly of uh, poor white farmers uh, like himself. Uh, He was born in the Carolinas uh, and and fought his way through his career to Tennessee and elsewhere and became very wealthy, but became very wealthy not through his establishment connections. Uh, And Jackson is the first president who doesn't come from Massachusetts or Virginia in this sense. And and he brings the presidency to this population, and he's the first president we call a populist for this reason, uh, this population of poor white farmers who feel that the office has uh, not paid attention to them at all. And this is one of the reasons why Jackson emphasizes uh, the moving of the Indians off the land. Uh, the Indians are the impediment to white settlers. And although the nation, the United States, has been moving Indians off the land uh, in all kinds of violent ways for decades, uh, Jackson takes that over as presidential policy, Indian removal, because he wants the president to provide opportunity to this group of Americans, this growing group, who he feels have been underserved by our government. You say that Abraham Lincoln revered Washington. 
but he was more similar in practice to Andrew Jackson. How was that the case? Abraham Lincoln um, recognized that this new party, the Republican Party, for which he's the first president, uh, had to appeal to people in a different way. Um, They were not going to be the Whigs, which were the older party that they replaced, which was a very elite party. Uh, That's the party of John Quincy Adams. Uh, They have to be a party that appeals to people like Abraham Lincoln, uh, men born on the frontier who don't own slaves, don't own land, have made their way as lawyers, as doctors, as small shopkeepers. Um, And and they've done this uh, on their own. And they feel left out of the Democratic Party, which is the party of slaveholders and plantation elites. And they feel left out of the Whig Party, which is the party of the uh, elite northern economically connected. Uh, And so he learns from Jackson that you have to develop the rhetoric, the ability to speak, the ability to motivate people uh, who otherwise wouldn't be motivated to get involved in politics. And, And one of the really interesting things, Alan, is to see the enthusiasm in American politics from the mid 19th century to the early 20th century, uh, at least among white voters, white male voters, you have higher turnout, uh, during that period than you'll ever have again in American history. It's very hard to find that, that high turnout. And it is part of this new appeal to ordinary people, including immigrants as voters. And I found it interesting that Lincoln had Jackson's portrait hanging in the White House, even though he'd been a Whig before being Republican, in in part for what you're saying, I think also in part because of Jackson's strong stand for the Union during the nullification crisis. Absolutely. That's a really important point. Mm -hmm. Uh, They differ. Lincoln and Jackson differ on the slavery issue. Of course, Jackson was a slaveholder. If if you visit uh, his his old home in Tennessee, you you see uh, at the Hermitage, you see the the, the huge uh, slave population, slave quarters that he had there. Uh, But he was also a strong defender of the Union. And and Lincoln certainly took that from both Jackson and from Washington. Lincoln left an incredible legacy, of course, that both inspires and haunts its successors, you say. Can you explain those dual conflicting legacies of Lincoln? Well, yes, and I think it's a legacy we're struggling with today that President Biden is struggling with with right now. Uh, Lincoln redefines the country. Uh, We go from a a country based on uh, landholding and uh, slave labor And that's at at the core of our economy. It's not a sideshow. It's the center of everything. All that wealth in New York is actually built upon the slave slave production and the the financing and the trade of slave produced goods Uh, and he and slavery. Right. And in ending slavery through first the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, uh, we become a post slave society. We become a society that's built on Republican Party principles of the time, which emphasize free labor, free soil, free men. Everyone should work, should get paid for their work, and should be able to use the pay from their work to purchase property. That's the dream for a propertyless, uneducated boy like Abraham Lincoln. That that becomes the foundation for our enormous capitalist development in the second half of the 19th century. And we become the leading capitalist country in the world because of the investments we make in exactly those things in education through our public university system created by Abraham Lincoln in 1862 with the moral land grant act using the railroad. We build more railroad stock than any other country the next half century to produce companies, to produce business, to produce economic activity and the single largest integrated market. It's a different society than the sleepy society of plantation work from 20, 30 years earlier. That's the startling legacy. I tell my students, uh, that's the reason we become a world power right there. That's the positive legacy. 
the challenge, the nightmare, the, the, the shadow is what that means in practice for integrating all of these groups, African-Americans, but not just African-Americans, groups that were held in hierarchical and subordinate positions in a society that is less hierarchical, at least in its political rights. And uh, as, as everyone listening knows, we struggle from that point to today, figuring out what equality means. What does equal access mean? Uh, how do we allow more people to participate in this process of capitalist development? And, and how do we bring people along who feel they have something to, new, new, to lose, who feel threatened by these new entrants? Uh, and that's the problem in the 1870s. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan emerges um, because of not not just racism, uh, but because many uh, established elites, white elites in the South and the North, feel threatened by all these new people coming into the economy. In the same way, people today feel threatened by perhaps immigrants coming into our economy. So that that's the struggle that emerges once you create a system that takes away these unequal political demarcations for different groups, particularly for African Americans. One of the presidents that that works with that legacy of Lincoln and the shadow of that legacy, of course, is Theodore Roosevelt, who once said the president was a short-term elective king. How did TR change the presidency into what you call the reformer-in-chief or the provider-in-chief? Well, Theodore Roosevelt, I think, is still the most fascinating president to study, Alan. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I know you you, you agree. Oh, <laughs> you I just yeah. you, 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 he, he jumps off the page. I mean, his 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 boisterous personality. Um, as one journalist said at the time, you know, you shake Theodore Roosevelt's hand, and you have to go home and shower to wash him out of your <laughs> body and your clothes. He's one of those people, and he still does it. You know, he, yeah. he still. Yeah, um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt has this enormous energy and this enormous capacity to take in different people, different perspectives, different ideas. The reason he really doesn't like the blue bloods that are his, his own family, his own community in New York is he finds them lazy. He finds them boring. <laughs> he, he wants to be around people who have new ideas. And so his solution to this dilemma we just discussed is to try to build a good government, a better government, a more active government. Even though he's a Republican, he's a big government guy. Uh, a big government that will uh, manage these problems better. And the first thing he wants to do is appeal to all the smartest thinkers. You know, whether it's Jacob Reese who's writing about poverty, whether it's John Dewey writing about education, he wants all of these individuals, he wants to bring all of their ideas into the White House. And kind of like a professor as well as a president, he wants to use those ideas to help everyone, to build a government that deals with these issues. And, and one of the ways he looks to do this is by expanding the um, American international footprint, by opening up more resources and more opportunities uh, for the United States abroad, politically and, and economically. And, and it's, it's still, I think, one of the most energetic and extraordinary presidencies to, to study. Oh, I, I, I do not in any way disagree with you. <laughs> now, how did Franklin Roosevelt then emulate TR's more vigorous approach to the presidency, but in a different way? You call it the uh, FDR was the healer in chief. Well, I think Franklin learned from uh, Cousin Teddy that uh, there was a place for a bigger government. Uh, and um, he took that in a sense from the Republican progressive politics. And Theodore Roosevelt thought, thought of himself as a Republican progressive. We don't put those words together enough now, but that's how he thought of himself. Uh, Franklin took that from Theodore 
but from the Democratic Party that he belonged to, that his line of the Roosevelt family was a part of, uh, he recognized that there were a lot of people left behind. The Democratic Party, since the Civil War, had been the party trying to help and protect um, especially poor whites or formerly rich, now less rich whites, uh, who were losing, uh, losing their place or fearful of losing their status. And uh, he recognized that now millions of Americans in the Depression felt that they were losing their status. They were losing their their, their basic income. He, he comes into the presidency when the unemployment rate is above 25%. And that's severely undercounting, of course, the, the number of farm workers and others who, who don't have uh, a basic livelihood. And only three or four states even have any kind of unemployment benefits. There's no federal unemployment benefit. So Roosevelt merges the energy, the vigor of Theodore with uh, a more traditional democratic emphasis on on what we might call welfare policies now um, and using the office of the presidency to help those left behind get another chance. And, and we should be clear about this. The New Deal for Roosevelt uh, is not about handouts. That's a mischaracterization of it. He's against handouts. He is for providing people small amounts of resources and institutional opportunities to get themselves ahead. Uh, seeding work, and everyone should have work and work that compensates them and gives them a chance to improve their lives and improve the lives of their families. And those are the classic New Deal agencies, the healing agencies. Roosevelt creates the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and and the list goes on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, post-war, you say, looking at JFK and LBJ specifically, that, quote, power defined JFK and LBJ more than they defined it. And you go on to say that JFK was the first president to, quote, feel lost in his own power, unquote. What what about the post-war presidency led to presidents being overwhelmed, no matter their personal abilities or the abilities of those around them? I think Kennedy is fascinating on this point. Uh, no president wanted to be Franklin Roosevelt more than John F. Kennedy. He, he hired a whole bunch of historians. That's why historians always say nice things about him to tell him how to be, you know, he asks, he asks Richard Neustadt and Arthur Schlesinger to both tell him how to be uh, Franklin Roosevelt. There's a kind of Oedipal thing there, right? Because his dad was in some ways an opponent of FDRs at times. And so he's sort of making up for his dad there. Um, Kennedy inherits this office and he has the desire to use this office to make America better again, to move America in new directions, especially in terms of foreign policy. Uh, but he finds he has all these obligations, all these activities, all these things that are transforming his agenda. And the most obvious example of this is the Bay of Pigs um, fiasco. Uh, he inherits uh, a revolution in Cuba uh, that he, Kennedy, had nothing to do with, uh, but it's a problem. It's a political problem. It's a strategic problem for the United States. And he inherits a central intelligence agency that has a plan. It's very hard for him to say no. Then he carries out the plan, and then he is held responsible when the plan blows up in his face. Uh, and that consumes weeks and months of his presidency right there. And we could come up with many examples of this. George Wallace inheriting uh, Wallace's activities in Alabama, uh, not just standing in the way of civil rights, but also flagrantly um, motivating and provoking uh, Jim Crow violence. Uh, Kennedy inherits that. He, he didn't come into the presidency to deal with people like George Wallace. He hated people like that. And <laughs> he has to lose weeks and months on those on those issues. So my point is that when I say he's lost in the power, that he, the fact he matters for, for Cuba, the fact that the president matters for what happens in Alabama, uh, that's a sign of his power. 
but the fact that he matters, that those things matter to him and he has to respond to them makes it nearly impossible for him to pursue his agenda as president. What about LBJ? It's the same type of same type of issues he was facing. Absolutely, I think with LBJ, it's this problem on steroids, and and in a in a certain way, LBJ makes it worse because his solution to the proliferation of issues is to proliferate more behavior on his part. So he's doing more. He's making the office more active, trying to get more accomplished. He's he's so proud of all the legislation he passes. Some of it is transformative. I mean, he, no president passes more legislation on civil rights in the 20th century than Lyndon Johnson. But he also, in, in his hyperactive work, many of these problems get worse and he gets more and more tied to them. And again, Vietnam is the, the best example. He was never enthusiastic about that war. He's trying to be as active as possible to win it and get out. And the more he does, the deeper he gets stuck in there. Moving forward, you make a very good point that I think is often overlooked, that part of Ronald Reagan's strength as president was his flexibility. How did that ability contribute to his success despite the huge challenges of the office? I'm so glad you brought that up, Alan. I I do think it's something that's missed uh, because people want to make Reagan out to be this zealot or this um, clairvoyant futurist. Uh, He's neither of those things. Ronald Reagan is someone who has some deeply held core principles, and they have a lot of depth to them, but they also have limitations to them. And uh, he is willing to go in various different directions to get there. He he really wants to end the Cold War. He really wants to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, He he really wants to free up local communities to do more of what they want to do. And, um, you know, he will... uh, have a nice relationship with Tip O'Neill from the other side to get this done if necessary. He will reach out to Soviet leaders. Um, And and so it's very important when looking at Reagan, not just to take a snapshot of one moment and think that captures it. I think if you look at the arc of his career, you see, as you said so well, Alan, his flexibility, it doesn't mean he's principle-less. It's actually know that he's flexible in the tactics to pursue the goals that he has that are deeply Mm -hmm. held. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Now, you note that both Presidents Clinton and Obama raised both great hopes and great fears. Why do you believe that both of those men face such visceral reactions? And how did those reactions lead them both to adopt what you define as gradualism as president? Right. I I, I think Clinton and uh, Obama are two presidents who bring enormous talent to the office, uh, but they're so non-traditional. Uh, and they come from backgrounds that challenge just by who they are, um, the established institutions of power in our society. And that's not to be conspiratorial in the least. Um, they're just not familiar to people. Uh, and uh, Clinton and Obama, they gain power by mobilizing new kinds of people to support them. Obama is the most obvious example with the the large outpouring of support from African-Americans and other minority groups, but also Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton's ability to reach beyond traditional democratic audiences uh, to to get the Bubba's and others uh, behind him. And um, this is seen as enormously threatening uh, by by, um, groups and individuals who who see their power associated with established ways uh, of doing things. And one of the paradoxes of American society in the early 21st century 
is we are an innovative society in our economic activities, but our political institutions are very stagnant because there's so many groups mobilized to keep them in place. Uh, and they don't have to be a majority, and it is not in any way conspiratorial, but there are people who benefit from these institutions who are able to mobilize money and votes to try to protect these institutions, which is why it's very hard to reform them. Mm-hmm. When you did your research for this book, Jeremy, were there other presidents who expanded the office that you considered including but didn't? Yes, uh, there were. And I, I made a choice uh, first to try to make the book readable. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's terrific. Okay. Thank, you for saying, thank you for saying that. Um, but also um, not to be encyclopedic because I think mm-hmm. presidential history, I, I'm interested in every president, but yeah. it, sometimes you can get overwhelmed uh, when, when people you know, put too many in. So I tried to pick presidents for each era as we've mm-hmm. talked about, that that sort of capture the shifts. But there's no doubt that Thomas Jefferson uh, mm-hmm. merits mm-hmm. discussion. Uh, you know, when Jefferson uses the office of the presidency to more than double the size of the country with the Louisiana Purchase, yeah. which has yeah. questionable constitutional basis, right? right. A- and then also uh, the economic embargo on the British uh, really transforms the role of the president in terms of uh, power with regard to the American economy. So th- those are both controversial in their time, but they certainly merit uh, study. Uh, one could also, of course, write a lot about Richard Nixon. I, I actually mm-hmm. did start a chapter on Nixon. I've written about Nixon a lot in other books. And in part, I didn't put it in this book because I've written a lot about him in other books and I get tired of writing about the same people. <laughs> but, but also, I mean, in Nixon's case, it's very much the abuse of power. And um, I, I was part of another project after that where we looked at abuse of power by multiple presidents. And there's a whole story to be told there. But that's mm-hmm. that's a different kind of expansion of power. But yeah. when we look today uh, at um, evidence of uh, a recent president, you know, using the Justice Department to investigate enemies. Uh, that's an expansion of presidential power that Nixon really started. Um, you don't see much of that uh, before. I, I didn't envy your task. I was thinking, uh, you know, how do you whittle this down? Essentially, you could have included Woodrow Wilson, obviously, in his international Absolutely. presidency. Even Harry Truman with the national security apparatus set up after the war to fight the cold, all these possibilities came flooding into my mind, but I think you made excellent choices. Oh, <laughs> so thank by you two, for saying uh, that. Of course. By 2016, you contend that successfully serving as president was impossible given the demands and the expectations on the office. What changes or new practices would you suggest to make presidents more successful? Well, I think first, uh, Alan, they have to acknowledge just what you said, um, that uh, they campaign on promises and an image that it is impossible to deliver on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the opposite of under promise and over deliver. It's over promise and under deliver. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's true of every president. Uh, it, it's just it, that's the, the the nature of our campaigns now, the nature of our society, and the image of the presidency. Because people do see how powerful it is. If you're such a powerful president, you should be able to do all. You know, you should be able to enforce human rights in Russia. You should be able to solve mm-hmm. poverty at home. No one should get COVID. You know, all these things. Right, that, right. <laughs> and and so uh, I think first of all, presidents have to come into office recognizing that they're going to have to make some hard choices. How they talk about those in public, that's something for the communications people to talk about. (laughs) But they have to know in their heart of hearts that there are only a few things they're going to get done and they better be the big things that really matter and they better mobilize their resources around that. And these don't have to be partisan things. 
for example, I think it is perfectly appropriate and doable for a president now to say that coming out of COVID, we're going to use this moment to make sure that we build the strongest economy possible for the United States for the next 50 years. And that might not that might mean not taking on some other issues, but taking that on, for example. Um, so that's the first thing. They have to make choices and make choices early on. That doesn't mean you ignore other things, but you have to know where your where your priorities are. Second, they then have to surround themselves with the people who can deliver on those things. You really need capable people in the uh, appointed offices, the congressionally appointed offices, but also in the non-appointed uh, offices. And that's that's really important. And a lot of presidents come into office not knowing who those people are. This is a big problem for Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is so smart, uh, but he has such limited executive experience beyond a relatively small state of Arkansas uh, that it takes him a long time. To figure out who the right uh, right people are, this is a big advantage George H. W. Bush has, at least in foreign policy, because he knows he, he knows those issues as well as anyone. And so, uh, having getting the right people in place, and then uh, you, and this is something I talk about in the conclusion, you, you've got to deal with Congress. Uh, presidents never like dealing with Congress; it's hard. Even those from your own party, they uh, all of a sudden, you know, they become uh, nagging children <laughs> once you're president uh, and you need to be ready to deal with Congress and you need to have a team set up to do that. And I argue in the book that there is there, there is a case to be made for creating something like a presidential and prime ministerial system where there is um, someone working for the president with the president who has the primary responsibility for managing Congress, for doing the horse trading and the negotiations with Congress. Vice presidents often play that role, but it's very hard because they don't have much legitimacy. Everyone knows the president is elected, not the vice president. So do you think in the atmosphere we're in today, if a presidential candidate said, these are my three big things and didn't make those promises, not to be negative or cynical, but could, could they be elected with that type of platform? Yes. I think if you tell a story, if you tell a story that's compelling and you say, these are the three issues and all the other things you care about will be made better somehow, that mm -hmm. might not be fully solved, but we may, will be made better by this. Yes. I, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. whoever tells the story in um, 2024 or 2028 about what the economy of the next 50 years will look like and can say, these are the things I'm going to do to get us to that economy, I, I think that's an enormously powerful thing. You still have to say small things about other issues. Uh, but I think, you know, the whole ball of wax is in the, the main elements of the story you tell. Too many of our candidates on both sides of the aisle have spent the last two decades uh, playing whack-a-mole, right? Just giving us a small answer to every small issue mm -hmm. rather than the bigger story. Yeah. I think President Biden recently said that one of the big challenges is figuring out our place in the world going forward. The world is radically changing every day, the rise of China and so forth. And how the next presidential candidate t talks to the American people about that, I think, is vital. Uh, so, again, those kind of core issues are important. I, I certainly hope that that you're correct, that if, if a candidate came forward with those types of topics, that the American people it would resonate with the American people and we will put that person into the White House. So very fascinating discussion, Jeremy. Thank you, Alan. And I, I agree 100 yeah. percent on what you yeah. said about the, the role of these international issues. Jeremy, it's time for our questions that might be a little <laughs> more personal and theoretical than what we just discussed. Are you up for okay. a little presidential time machine kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> let's dive right in. 
Washington is having dinner with Biden. <laughs> All right. What mm-hmm. primary piece of advice does POTUS 1 give POTUS 46 about the job? I think POTUS 1 tells POTUS uh, 46 that um, you need to find your Alexander Hamilton. You need someone oh, who will be both uh, on board with your agenda and have the deviousness and savviness to get it through. The way the presidency operates today, who would be best suited for the office? Jefferson, Lincoln, or Theodore Roosevelt? Uh, I think Theodore Roosevelt would would thrive in the office today. Uh, he'd, he'd have some big adjustments to make, uh, but he would love the combination of sophisticated analysis that's required for the issues mm, we, yeah. we deal with, and then the personal touch. Uh, he'd be out there. Uh, he'd have his own rallies, but they'd look very different, and he would motivate people. Uh, we, we need a Theodore Roosevelt today, quite frankly. I love Theodore, he, but he, don't you think he would immediately offend uh, a lot of people? <laughs> Because he's very straightforward <laughs> with his views, <laughs> I, I, I think I think he would offend, but what he he would offend, but he would also enlighten, mm-hmm. educate. I mean, because he was a highbrow, high-minded person yes, as yes. well. He would do both, yeah. and that's what's missing. You can be offensive. We've had offensive figures throughout our history. It's can you also raise people up? Ah, good yeah. point. And I think his energy is just infectious, yes. right? Absolutely, absolutely. And his seriousness. This man took policy seriously. It was about being popular, but it was also about getting the right ideas for the right He was a real scholar. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay, the opposite side of this, the way the presidency operated when it was first conceived, who would be best suited for the office? Obama, Reagan, or Nixon? I I think uh, Barack Obama. I think there are elements of Barack Obama that that capture the 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 nature of the presidency in its earliest time. Obviously, not Obama's skin color, but um, uh, Obama's strength actually uh, was his ability. within certain groups to find um, threads that brought them together. He puts together this incredible coalition of Democrats. And yes, you said you want to say it's only one side of the aisle, but it's an incredible coalition of people from different kinds of backgrounds. And he brings them together. And he has a very high-minded, idealistic view of American society that I think Washington and Lincoln would both resonate with. There are a lot of nice job perks these days that come with being president. Of our first 10 presidents, Washington through John Tyler, who would have most enjoyed these perks, such as White House Fine Dining, Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, all those things? Who would have most enjoyed those perks? You know, it's paradoxical because we think of Thomas Jefferson as as speaking for the common man, but Jefferson would have. Uh, yeah, he, he, he did he like the finer things, didn't he? he? He liked the finer things in life, and um, he also appreciated uh, he appreciated beauty and excellence mm-hmm. and 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 all of these things. And so, I think he would have found it most enthralling. And his friend, but also adversary, John Adams, would have been least comfortable with all of these things. <laughs> right. I was just about to say, John Adams probably wouldn't have fit in oh. very well. <laughs> he, he would have slept on the floor in Blair House or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Jeremy, can you summarize in just a sentence or two the evolution of the presidency and yes. where you think it might be headed? Yes, I think the the presidency has grown in power consistently, but over the last 50 to 70 years, the growth in power has diminished its efficacy. And where we're going now is to reform the office so power can be used more effectively for the problems Americans care about. Okay. Jeremy, uh, what is next for you? 
I am uh, trying to finish this summer and fall uh, a new book called The Roots of Division, How the Struggles for Democracy After the Civil War uh, Left a Legacy for Today. And it's, it's really focused on the period from 1865 to about 1877, mm-hmm. 78, really the assassination of Lincoln to the assassination of Garfield, and using that period to understand the unresolved and deeply held tension that comes out of the Civil War between those who are pursuing a multiracial democracy and those who see a more limited democracy. And I think that unresolved debate is the debate we're having sure, today. Sure. Well, I can't wait to read that. Jeremy, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion and for joining us on American POTUS. Thank you for having me on and for all of the great work you do to educate uh, so many listeners around the country. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Jeremy Surrey for joining us on this episode about the Office of the Presidency. More information on his book, The Impossible Presidency, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Dwight Eisenhower. Quote, By leadership, we mean the art of getting someone else to do something that you want done because he wants to do it, not because your position of power can compel him to do it.